today's uh, message. Father, we thank you so much um, that you are a good God, uh, that you have created us beforehand for good works. And I pray, Lord, that um, even as I speak, that you would um, speak to each one of us. They won't be my words, but Lord God, that you would help us to comprehend truth. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, hey, so it is uh, so good when people work together. You know, uh, I just read a book. Uh, when you can't talk, you read. Um, so I just read a book that said all flourishing is mutual. You can't just be good or care about yourself at the expense of everybody else because we can't ignore the interaction that we have with other people. So you can't, you, it is impossible for a person to just privately flourish while the world is burning because we live in this world and if it burns, no matter how good you are, it doesn't go well for you. As Christians though, we have to take it one step more because we have our master to contend with. Uh, I didn't realize Uncle YC was going to share his verse, but man, Uncle YC is like, let's just give it hard. But Jesus would say in Matthew 25, 40, right? What you do to the least of us, you do to him. So Christians actually aren't flourishing if we are not working for the good of the world. Not just because it's a good thing to do, but because we also have to contend with Jesus who instructs us this way. I'm actually very thankful uh, last week for uh, my mom who is over there and so many people who uh, covered for me um, suddenly. I was meant to preach last week, uh, but for some reason, I uh, was, I've now discovered, subconsciously clenching my jaw badly. And so on Friday, and actually it was really bad on Saturday, I couldn't chew or talk without a lot of pain. And so clearly couldn't speak on the Sunday. But so many people messaged, they came around uh, to check on me. And then on a Monday, man, pastoring an Asian church, everybody just orders you for tests. So then on Monday, x-ray, ECG, blood tests, whatever, like, oh my goodness, right? A whole bunch of tests. It, it turns out I'm fine. It's all kind of good. Um, it uh, was most likely my body's reaction to too much stress. Um, I think the Sunday that was leading up, you know, we had uh, over 800 people at our church service, so full service here, the full service at 4 p.m. I was talking as usual, constantly. Then Monday, my day off, I decided it would be a great day to roster in to put up that mural that you have outside. So we spent about like, you know, like uh, a bunch of us came in and then we, we put that up. And then Tuesday was calendaring, right? So I woke up early in the morning and then we did the calendar with all the different ministries for next year. I think we finished about 10, 11 o'clock. Um, and then Wednesday was all day meetings, which I really enjoyed meeting, you know, with uh, Forest Hill Chase and a range of other things. And then by Thursday, my body was trying to tell me a truth that I had not realized. 
I wasn't feeling stressed. I love the job that I get to do. But there's only so much you can get away with, with enthusiasm. Because the body really does keep score. You know, my first sermon in this series called uh, Gospel, we looked at why uh, the gospel, which means good news. We looked at why the gospel was good. Not just a private good for you personally, but genuinely good for all. And today, we're going to look at the second word of good news. Um, and we're going to look at news, or the whole concept of truth. Yeah. Actually, the translators of the Greek uh, euangelion picked good news because they never imagined a world of fake news. They, they could, they, so for them, I think a good way to translate it is good truth. Because for them, the news was just people telling you things that are happening that are true. But uh, probably news has a different meaning uh, nowadays. So we're going to look at this whole concept of truth. Um, and I feel like now that I'm getting older, uh, my, my, my body is really good at teaching me lessons on truth, right? So you can't, you, you can't I feel like you can't escape truth uh, for too long. Uh, let's talk a little bit about goodness then and truth. Christians don't hold the monopoly. We aren't the only ones who can do good works. That should be pretty obvious. Other people, obviously, can do good works, sometimes better than us. But we are called to do good works. Last week, before my uh, you know, TMD, uh, we spoke about why the gospel is good, why it compels us to not just do good, but to be good. To be like Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Not just do good things, but our character is not good. Our, our, our inner life is not good. We were to emulate Christ. So much of the gospel can be summarized by Jesus Christ. Also, I know this goes without saying, but I'll just try to make it clear. Christians don't hold the monopoly on truth. There are many things in life that are true, uh, that are outside of the Bible, outside of what you would learn at church, outside of what you would so-called the Christian world. Um, but let's be very, very clear before we get much further on in this sermon uh, on truth. Truth, though, even though Christians don't have the monopoly on truth, truth has a monopoly on existence. And I, and I know it might be a little bit hard to sort of explain, but lies get found out. It's hard to keep fake things. You have to, it takes work to create and maintain an illusion, even if it's an anime cartoon or something that you imagine or something. Like, it, it, it's hard because you constantly have to fabricate it. You constantly have to create it. 
Whereas if something is real or it's true, it just, it just lies. It's just there. It's just there. All of reality works together to uphold the thing that is true. Truth has this way of surviving because it takes effort to sustain lies. And so there are elements of truth everywhere. Even in every philosophy, in religion, there's truth in science, but there's also truth in what your parents say, right? That's, that's what's so good about truth. You know, so maybe human, mankind, we've struggled with what's true and not true over thousands of years that we've been around, right? But despite the cultures and the fads and truth eventually wins out. So fire is still hot and people still need love. There are some things that are just going to be immutably true as we go through the various seasons of humanity. So let's talk about something that's not Christianity. I know, very weird for you to come to church and you get a pastor, he's talking about right? But I just want to, I, I want to emphasize this point of the pursuit of truth, which is what we're going to be discussing uh, today. And soon, I'm hoping soon, you will understand why this is really important. Um, so, Confucius, Asian church, right? <laughs> Confucius's followers collected stories about him, right? And then, I don't know if you know this, but then he wrote all of these things, uh, Confucius sayings, right? Into this book, which is a series of books, that's called the Analects. Now, Confucius, he wasn't a god. He didn't try to be a god. He was just trying to figure out life or the way, Tao, right? Um, so, so you got to ask, why would somebody like Confucius, who's not, who's not saying he's God, creator of the whole world, why would he have so much influence uh, in, the, in the world? You know, think about how many Chinese or Asians are around and how much Confucianism has shaped even the cultural um, value system of, of Asians, right? Well, I asked ChatGPT this. <laughs> and it turns out, so I said, what gave Confucius legitimacy? And the Google answer, or ChatGPT, because now it links to Bing, you know, whatever. Okay, his legitimacy stemmed from his insightful understanding of human nature, his practical approach to governance and social harmony, and the enduring relevance of his teachings. So nothing like, whoa, he rose from the dead, or he did it like, just like, hey, People read the things that he said, and they went, oh, that's not bad. And then over time, his philosophy became integrated into the fabric of Chinese society, shaping his values and institutions, right? So, just as an example, not trying to make Confucianism, you know, uh, believers of everybody. I certainly disagree with a lot of stuff. But you know what was his first statement? Do you know what was the thing that he began his book with, that he kicked everything off. He was like, hey, let's just write a truth statement in there. On no authority at all, I'm not pretending to be God, I'm just going to write a truth statement. And do you know what he, he was in book one, chapter two? Because chapter one is just the intro. 
He wrote this. A man who respects his parents and his elders would hardly be inclined to defy his superiors. A man who is not inclined to defy his superiors will never foment a rebellion. A gentleman works at the root. Once the root is secured, the way or dial unfolds. Two, this is like his first, his, his main point. I'm like, Whoa. To respect parents and elders is the root of humanity. So here's the guy, he's just like, he's just writing this stuff down. And it turns out that actually there is some level of truth in that because the, we are all connected to the generation that is before us. The traditions into which we are born, they're not just options that we can choose or like, oh, what, like we came even to exist and to continue to live in a in an interconnected world from the generation before us. Our very bodies were generated by and from our biological parents' bodies, right? We were sustained through infancy and early childhood by those who cared for us. The language that we speak, we didn't invent this language that we currently speak. It was passed down. There's no way we could invent it. We, we can only receive a language and then pass it on from one generation to another, right? Everything we say then, everything we ask, even every assertion that we um, make is woven into a tapestry of real life that is comprised of one generation to another generation to another generation to another generation. And so at some level, this guy, when he begins his analex thing, he says, hey, you were, you know, at the root, we're kind of connected. We're kind of connected. It goes into a lot of details, right? So I'm not advocating that we all adopt confusions. I'm just trying to say that, uh, I'm trying to make a point that truth persists. And, if, and it is worth pursuing. So please don't take the prevalent view today of just saying Everyone can have their own version of truth. That it doesn't matter what people believe. It doesn't matter what people do. It does matter and truth matters. Truth matters because it can be tested against our real world, our life, our experiences of life. The reason why I bring this up, 2016, the Oxford Dictionary, I don't know if you know, 2016, the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was post-truth. A new word that had become so popular that the Oxford Dictionary made it their Word of the Year. Post-truth. The definition of post-truth is where circumstances, uh, circumstances where objective facts are less influential than emotions or personal beliefs. That means that our era has this category now that is characterized by varying versions of truth based on individual preferences, emotions, beliefs, right? So this is the environment that we exist or live in. 
So before we can even discuss the existence of God or the gospel or, or any of these types of things, it's essential to address the question, does truth even exist? I know it sounds ridiculous that I'm actually trying to say, but you would not believe the prevalent mindset that is in the world today. So I feel like it needs a little bit of space to just go, right? You know, there's a philosophy professor who was debating, debating this, and a student in the class, they, they put up their hand and said, there's no absolute truth. And this professor's reply was, if there is no absolute truth, is your statement true? Okay, don't think too hard about it. <laughs> We live in a world now where truth is like relative, right? And one of the reasons why we think truth is relative is we just, we, we look at the way history, uh, our views of history have even, it, it's changed now. I remember growing up where people would just go, whatever was in the Malaysian history books, that's the truth. Turns out, Malaysian history books have changed a lot, <laughs> right? And it, it's like the victor can rewrite history. And so we, we're now mostly told that, that, that history is relative, that it's told from the perspective of the winner, the victor, who can rewrite or shape history. So then you're tempted to believe that nothing can be said about history because who, who's to say what, what actually happened? But you'd be wrong to take that conclusion too far. Because while it is true that you may not know everything about history, it is also true that something happened. For instance, you might hear different stories around your birth and, you know, why you were born or which parent loved you more or how you got, right? Fine. Who knows who's got the right version? But surely there is some level of truth in there that you were born. I'm pretty sure your mom and dad, like, you know, they remember, like, there is some, there is some actual objective truth. Um, it, it's hard, though, to figure out these perspectives. So I'm not even going to attempt today to, to, to figure out what is the right version of things. You know, like, uh, I know, pick something controversial, like what's happening in Israel at the moment. Who knows, right? I'm not even going to try and talk about what's the right perspective of that. And, but here's the thing. Even though the whole world cannot agree on the final narrative of what's happening in that region, there is still a reality that something has happened there, that they have a past, that, that it does matter. It matters to a whole lot of people. It's not all made up. That's why we can't solve it easily. Right? So you have to, at some level, in your journey through life, grapple with what things are true. So let's go to existence and God. Right? Is there... So is there a God? Like, either this statement is true or it's not true. I mean, whether we know it or we don't know it, like, 
There's either a God or there's not a God. There cannot exist a flux of God, no God. One of these things has to be true, right? Um, you know, so some people think that God made the world. And then there's others who think that, like, nothing made the world. I, I love this clip that Wally, you know, uh, showed me. Sorry, I didn't reply. I was, like, so flat out busy, right? But, you know, uh, and I can't share you his clip because of the swearing that is in there. But thanks, Wally. <laughs> okay. But, you know, like, it's actually possible to think that God doesn't exist. But actually, nothing doesn't exist. So if you don't think God made the world, you think nothing, you know, that that we came up from nothing, right? Well, turns out the defining quality of nothing is that it doesn't exist. So it's not there. So it actually takes a fair amount of belief. So you either you're stuck, I think, between this rock and a hard place because either the world was created out of nothing, which is by definition non-existent, or you believe that God created it, or then you have to think God doesn't exist, and you go to the beginning alternative where there is also nothing that exists, and so you're kind of in a conundrum. Somewhere in that conundrum lies the truth. My, my favorite Bible verse, actually, about God's existence sits in Romans 1, 19 to 20. And it says this. And so it, it's, it's laid out pretty simply, I feel. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, all of humanity, all of us. For what can be known to God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, it's pretty powerful to create the world, to to make our bodies, and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, or all of us, are without excuse. It, It means that the fundamental proposition that the Bible makes is, hey, we're supposed to, like an average person, look around, wake up one morning and go, my goodness. Isn't this world amazing? Someone, something more powerful than me. Someone who's not me. Obviously, I'm not God. Clearly, I can't be God. Clearly, the whole world can't revolve around me. I'm not the creator of the world. Something made the mountains, the birds in the air, the the moon, the stars, the, the wonderful creation that we see. It should be so plainly obvious is the argument. You know, Carl, I love what Carl Sagan, who is not a Christian, right? A renowned astronomer, author, Carl Sagan famously said, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Think about it. It's something as simple as just making an apple pie. Well, you got to get the apples. 
You gotta get the tree, you gotta get the seed, you gotta get the soil, you gotta get the air, you gotta and then you just go, 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 go. Right? Like it's complicated. It is a big jump, I think, to go. And everything we have here is from nothing. And that's the proposition that the Bible makes. Now, this sermon is not going to be long enough for me to go into the truth about God. I'd love to. It would just take too long. You know, and the goal for today is to just pique your curiosity that, that Christianity is not, it's not about reciting traditions. We're not about following a set of rules. Christianity is about good truth, good news. But how do you make people believe this good news? How do you just like, oh, come on, you got to, your, your, your children or whatever, how do you got to believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? How do, you, how do you make people believe? Did you know that you can't force someone to believe something? And uh, let's go one step further, and I'm going to really, really simplify this. We'll finish in 15 minutes, don't worry, right? But I'm going to I'm going to really, really simplify this. Did you know that at some level, you yourself, you can't even control what you believe. You can't make yourself believe in something. There's a scenario that people use to explain that. There's a hostage scenario. So imagine you were captured. All right, you're captured. I know there's kids in here, so, you know, like, you're, you're captured nicely, right? <laughs> and, and your captor said to you, <laughs> I don't want to traumatize. It's like leading up to Christmas. Okay, right? Imagine uh, you were captured, right? And your captor said to you, I will set you free if you believe that I am Jesus Christ. <laughs> The Son of God. I've just captured you, right? And then now I'm going to show you photos of your family, your loved ones. They're all held hostage. I'm going to let them free also if you believe that I, me, am Jesus Christ, incarnated Son of God. That's all you have to do. You're looking at this like hostage guy who's like tied you up nicely, you know, and or whatever, right? <laughs> and you're, you're imagining, right? What would you do? I reckon the best, the best that you could muster up would be, okay, okay, okay. I believe you are the, you would say, I believe you are the son of God. That would be the best you could possibly come up because in actual truth and reality, are you going to walk out of there? Oh, yes, that must be the Jesus of the Bible that I have read. <laughs> it, it, it would be so hard for you to even do that, let alone force somebody else to believe that. So this is the issue when Jesus comes on the scene, right? He's born. We're celebrating Christmas coming up. How is this guy going to get people to believe he's the son of God? How is this going like, to happen? 
You know, our gospel statement is the gospel is the good news that God became a man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving he's the son of God, offering the gift of salvation and forgiveness of sins to everyone who repents and believes in him. How are you going to do that? How are you going to get people to believe in him as the truth? There's certainly people who have come before him. I mean, Josephus listed about a dozen or more messiahs. So I'm going to whittle it down as we get to the end of today's sermon. I'm going to whittle it down to two things that Jesus did that are truth-oriented. The first is this. The way He lived his life. We are not talking about a person in a fictitious world. We're talking about a person who has been historically verified. They're non-Christians, Jews, Romans, who have written about Jesus, right? We have our own eyewitnesses from the Gospels. But there is the way that he lived. And much like what I said about Confucius, there were a lot of people who interacted with Jesus before they even saw him rise from the dead. There was people who, who interacted with Jesus, the ones who knew him, and they went, you know what, I'm going to follow, I'm going to follow after him. Why? Because the things he was saying were true. The life that he lived was the life that we wanted to live. He loved others. He cared for other people. He was, look at the life of Jesus. We're going to be doing Jesus, by the way, for the whole of December, right? So we're going to take some time to look at that, the, the way that he lived. But Jesus, he, he did extraordinary things, he, he, but he said extraordinary things as well. He called out hypocrisy, even in the church. People resonated with that. Look at one of his most famous parables, the Good Samaritan. Right? It's found in Luke 10, 30 to 37. In this passage, Jesus is less concerned about continuing the religious order that he, he walked into. He's less interested actually in uh, whether you are the priest or you're the Levite who was born, you know, special or whatever it is. Less, he was like, hey, 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 hey. What is the truth that is going on? And in this story, Jesus tells of somebody who in reality does something good for someone else. And he calls out the lack of reality, the lack of truth that exists in other people who are supposed to mirror Jesus. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And Jesus named the priest, the pastor, the Levite, the religious grouping. Or the Samaritan, the person who you wouldn't think would be in that category. It wasn't that priest, the professional. It wasn't the Levite, the person born into the role. Jesus would care more about the truth. And in this parable, Jesus actually was explaining. The reason why I choose this is Jesus was explaining 
the greatest commandment, not his greatest commandment, by the way, what he would posit to be the greatest commandment, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. All in one category. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That our love for God should compel us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Like all that's one. You cannot, there's no like, oh no, technically there's two commandments. I'm just going to do one, love God. I'm not going to do the other. It's the greatest commandment. It is linked. Right? Now the second is his death and resurrection. Right? So the first, how did Jesus make people believe? Well, it's the way he lived his life. People saw how he lived his life and they followed after him. They followed him. This Man, I'm going to give my life for this guy. And then you have his death and resurrection. Um, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, oh man, uh, 30 to 38, um, no, 3 to 8, sorry. Uh, it says, for I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So he did something that thousands of years before was prophesied to have been done, right? Then he was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to see first to somebody like you guys know that I know, right, Peter? And then to the, to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, meaning you could just go up and talk with them. Although some have like fallen asleep. Um, he, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, to me, untimely born, he, uh, he also appeared to me. People who were there with Jesus saw something they had never seen before. It changed them. It changed them not for political gain or for wealth or even to start a movement. Most of them died poor. They died terribly. And they died without seeing what Christianity would become. They merely relayed what they saw and how it changed them. Did you know that all across this room here are people whose lives have been changed by Jesus. I want to encourage you over this party season where you're chit-chatting with people, why don't you just ask somebody, hey, what happened in your life that is true? So, for us, let's end it like this. This is the key, uh, so this is the end of our gospel series and then we're going to go into the Jesus series. But I think for us, if we are very serious about proclaiming the good news, we shouldn't be running around certainly taking hostages and forcing people to believe in Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be going around actually living the kind of life that is so inconsistent with what Jesus would teach us or believe. We shouldn't, people can see fakeness for what it is. We exist in a world of fake news. Again, we're going to land with the best, the plan. The plan has always been for us. That God chose to make known Himself, 
God chose to make known these kinds of truths through us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so that's why as we end, I've got to ask this question. We've got to, we've got to contend very seriously with this question. If we're a church, if we're Christians, is our faith true? Is it real in us? You know, Jesus, He would say um, in John 15, He would give us the secret of how we could live this life that He wants us to live, the Christ in us life. You know what He would say in John 15? He would say, it's like this. I'm the vine. I'm the vine. And you're the branches. So abide in me. Abide with me. Stay close to me. Interact with Jesus. Get to know Jesus. Let Jesus inspire you. Let Jesus be your master. Let Jesus be like that branch and you're the, uh, the vine and you're like the branches. That's why we're taking the whole month of December to look at Jesus, right? We're, we're actually, it's a good month to join us because we're down to one service at 11 uh, a.m. I think it'll actually be pretty crowded because we'll have the kids in the service as well and then we've got the whole 4 p.m. service that's coming. So um, we're doing it because we want to give the volunteers a bit of a break. So you may have to come early uh, for church and prayer meeting is really good, 10 o'clock. Okay, but anyway, we're taking the whole month of December to look at Jesus because we really think that at the very heart of the good news is Jesus Christ Himself. And the best thing that you can do is to have Jesus close to you. Jesus transform your life. Jesus in you, shaping you, shaping your value system, shaping what you do, shaping who you are. And then when that happens, people will perceive the truth. They will see us as Christians, not as fake Christians who want to, I don't know, be things that we're not. But they will see us like they saw Jesus. And that transformed not just his city, not just his country. It transformed their empire and it ended up transforming our very world till this day. This great strategy that we would be people who have Christ in us, who care for our community, who make a difference in, in, in real lives, who conduct ourselves, not in some fancy way only in church Sunday service, but in our regular everyday life. So I want to ask us as we, as we close, what's the pursuit of truth like in your life? Are you on this journey to find out what things matter, what things are true, what things are good? And if, if, if you are on that pursuit, I want to encourage you to at least take an exploration look this Christmas at Jesus Christ the man who lived the life that we wished we could live, who died for us. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to uh, 
see Jesus, to be able to read scriptures, to interact with people who've had their lives changed by Jesus, to live our lives modeling after Jesus. I pray, Lord, as we go into this Christmas season, that it would not be uh, about parties and food and gifts, uh, that you would help us as a church do the things that Jesus did, have the values that Jesus had, and draw our very source from Jesus Christ himself. In Jesus' name. Hello. Thanks, Pastor Chris. Um, it's such a powerful and timely message and I just want to share from John 4, but the hour is coming and now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Um, I don't know about you, but there is this, there's a conviction in me right now. And you know, there's the things that Chris has spoken. Uh, we can't ignore this. And there needs to be a response from us as followers of Christ. And the worship that we do is not just the worship in, as a congregation, but it, 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 it stretches out into our lives because we must be living sacrifices for Christ. So right now, I just want us to respond in worship. And it's responding in the truth that He is worthy to be worshipped. So I just want to invite you guys to stand up right now. But we're going to end the service with some worship. And I want us to just um, prepare our hearts to worship Him. We're just going to sing. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship You. I worship You. You are here, working in this place. I worship you, I worship you. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you, I worship you. You are here, working in this place. I worship you, I worship you. Cause you are my maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God.
thank you for your word today, God. We pray that the word that has come into us will not be like seed that is sown into weeds or sown into the the, the concrete and the gravel, but God, may it take deep root within our souls, God, deep root within our spirits, God, that there be, be fruit that comes from it. And God, we pray that whatever's been spoken today, whatever's been said and your conviction, your Holy Spirit, God, may we respond to that, God. May we not ignore it, God, but God, we thank you for your word that has come today. And God, we just wanna um, come to you right now with ourselves as a sacrifice to you. We pray that, God, we respond to you in the things that we do. We thank you in Jesus' name.